Broadway musicals are filled with uplifting moments like Tony and Maria kissing in West Side Story, or cowboys from Oklahoma singing about their brand new state, or even Wicked's Elphaba defying gravity. So where does a menstruating teenage girl wearing a Greek toga getting covered in pig's blood fit into this wonderful world of musicals? Let's find out when we look at one of the biggest Broadway disasters of all time, the musical version of Stephen King's horror story, Carrie, on this week's This Was a Thing. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we're looking at the 1988 Broadway musical Carrie. Yes, I know, right? Yes, Stephen King's Carrie, that is correct. Oh. The show, as opposed to Jodie Picoult's Carrie, (laughs) or J.K. Rowling's Carrie. Carrie Fisher. Carrie the Musical's original tagline was, there's never been a musical like her, and boy, were they right. (laughs) This was a thing, because at its time, it was the most expensive failure in Broadway history, and it really has become the flop that you judge all other flop musicals Okay. On. So, for example, you could tell a friend, hey, I just saw Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, and it was bad. And they would look at you and say, was it Carrie bad? That's it. That's it, right? And the answer is, no, it was not. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Carrie the musical, let's take a look at the source material, which was the master of horror, Stephen King's first published novel. In 1974, the novel debuted as Carrie, a novel of a girl with a frightening power. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the actual plot of Carrie, it takes place in the 1970s, takes place in Maine, and Carrie White is a bullied 16-year-old girl who's raised in a very sheltered home by a religious mother, Mrs. White. No real understanding of her developing womanhood or her own sexuality. That's her parents' fault. That's mom's fault. That's Mrs. White's fault because Mrs. White's very, very religious. Oh, okay. Carrie realizes that she has telekinetic powers and decides to use those powers to destroy the lives of those who have tormented her. Like you do. Like you do. Nothing more screams a musical than (laughs) telekinetic powers. Well, and teenagers. And teenagers. The hardback of Carrie sold a mere 13,000 copies, but the paperback, which was released a year later, sold over 1 million copies in its first year. So naturally, that's pretty big, and it's ripe for a movie adaptation. And in 1976, it becomes a film, and the film is probably more iconic than the book itself. Uh, It's directed by the great Brian De Palma. It was written by Stephen King in conjunction with a gentleman by the name of Lawrence D. Cohen. Remember his name. He's going to come up in a little bit. Here's a little trailer, friends, for if you've never seen the 1976 film, Carrie. Based on the chilling bestseller. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Now, this isn't just a brilliant movie. It is the horror movie that everyone wants to emulate. It is like the gold standard. The Exorcist and Carrie, to me, are both the most brilliant horror films ever made. Because both of them are rooted in a reality. Sure. It's scary things happening to normal people. The movie is filled with iconic moments. The scene where Carrie realizes she's getting her period for the first time and the girls are so mean and like they're throwing tampons at her. Um, The end, sorry, spoiler alert, where Amy Irving like goes to Carrie's grave. Yeah, she dies. Um, And when she goes to put down the flowers, Carrie's arm reaches out from underneath the grave and tries to pull her in. 
also terrifying. But the most iconic thing in this film is probably the sequence where Carrie, unbeknownst to her, goes to prom just to be humiliated. She's standing on stage. She's just one prom queen. She's never been so happy. And they dump a bucket of pig's blood on her. Remember, they've rigged the bucket up into the fly system. Mm -hmm. They dump it on her. She's humiliated. How does she respond? She telekinetically locks all the doors and windows and sets fire to everyone in the gymnasium and kills everybody. Like Like you you do. do. So, in 1981, Lawrence D. Cohen, who wrote the screenplay, and composer Michael Gore decided to go to the opera together. Gore, if you don't know the name, he's a composer. He's sibling to Leslie Gore. He also had just won the Oscar in the early 80s for writing the music to this movie. Okay, so Michael Gore and Lawrence Cohen go to see an opera. The opera they go to see is Alban Berg's 1937 opera, Lulu. Lulu is an opera where our protagonist is female, but she's both victim and havoc wreaker. So she has two sides to her. And Gore and Cohen decide that if Berg were still alive today, he would probably pick Carrie as his next subject to musicalize. Well, Berg was dead, so they decided if he's not going to do it, Let us do it. And honestly, Broadway needed a shakeup at this time, especially from American writers. So, folks, if you're not familiar with the Broadway scene in the 1980s, it's a very mixed bag of things. But what you need to know more than anything is that the American shows are not so good, but the British shows, the European imports, Mm -hmm. are dominating everything. So you have to remember the old guard was dying off, so that's like people like Richard Rogers and you know all those people. And then sadly on this end, the new guard that was supposed to come and replace the old guard is dying off because AIDS is decimating the Broadway community at this time. Now over in England, the British had figured out how to best utilize the excess of the 1980s, right? Cocaine, <laughs> Star Wars, E.T. And they were like, I think we can st- we can put this excess on stages. So this is why we have such hits as Cats and Lame Is and Starlight Express. Thank you, excess. And Phantom of the Opera. America, on the other hand, is churning out pretty much flop after flop in the mid-80s. Here's a couple of other musicals that are playing around the time that Carrie's getting created. A show called Quilters, which is about women making quilts. Uh, Another musical at this time, I think, is also a great example of what's going on on Broadway in this time. It's called Into the Light, and it's a musical starring Dean Herbie the Lovebug Jones. Oh. Do you know what Into the Light was about? Uh, People dying. It was a good guess. It was a musical about the Shroud of Turin, the garment that they think Jesus had died in. So there was tap dancing popes. It was very bizarre. Gore, Michael Gore, recruits Dean Pitchford to do the lyrics because they did fame together. And they're going to live forever. Fame! Pitchford is also 80s legendary because he wrote the screenplay of Footloose. Oh. Everybody cut, everybody cut, Footloose. These three guys start working on a musical version of Carrie. Not an opera, but an actual musical theater version of Carrie. Now, the show goes through numerous drafts and different songs, but finally in August of 1984, they have an idea of what Act One is going to be. And so they present a workshop of it. Now, a workshop is really where the writers will get actors to read and sing whatever they have for producers. So that way producers are like, I really like that. Here's $10 million, et cetera, et cetera. Here's who was in the workshop for Carrie the Musical. Carrie was played by the great Annie Golden. And if you don't know Annie Golden, she's Norma, the one who never talks on Orange is the New Black. Okay, got it. Also, she's a brilliant singer. Brilliant, brilliant singer. Maureen McGovern, the morning after singer from the Poseidon Adventure. She plays Carrie's mom. And then there's other Broadway actors that fill out the various roles. But it's really clear that this is going to be a story between Carrie and Mrs. White. So you need like two two big powerhouses for that. And Dean Pitchford directs it because they don't have a director yet. That's also one of the things the workshop is trying to do is to to get a director. And what's fantastic is, is they tape recorded audio the entire workshop so here's a little clip of annie golden oh singing in the august 1984 workshop now i may be down to speak i pray the lord my heart will speak and say the words that set me free and tell me i belong to me 
Now, the one thing, though, that the writers are stressing in this workshop to all the producers and directors that are possibly interested in the show is this musical is going to be based in realism. You'll have real sets, meaning like there's like three walls and there's detailing and stuff. There'll be scenes in the principal's office. There'll be scenes in the classroom. A lot of the dialogue is being lifted verbatim from the movie. And the most important moment of a musical really is the end of the first act because it's like, what's the cliffhanger that's going to make people come back? And they've decided at the end of the first act for Carrie, she's going to demonstrate to her mom her powers by closing all the windows in the house without moving a muscle. Sure. Like that's going to look pretty cool no, on yeah. stage, right? And now here's here's where Carrie starts to get interesting, I think. The score has a lot of thrilling songs in it. Really fantastic music. I'd like to play some for you if I can. Sure. This is the title song from Carrie called Carrie. Oh, this is so 80s. But it's good. Sing it, Carrie. So that's Carrie, the title song. Then there's a really beautiful song called Unsuspecting Hearts that Carrie sings with the gym teacher, Miss Gardner, who was played in the film by Betty Buckley. But for this is going to be the great singer, Darlene Love. So, as you can tell, the music is kind of good. Now, there's a couple of what we call WTF songs. Okay. Those songs are really given to the nasty high school kids. Okay. So, you go, okay, they'll, I'm sure they'll flesh it out. How do you musicalize one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, which is where they need blood to dump on Carrie, so they're going to go and cut up some pigs and they're going to take the pig's blood. You cut it. No, no, we're we're going to set it to music. Here's the song Out for Blood. It's a simple little gig you help me kill a pig. And then I've got some plans for the blood. Kill, kill, pig, pig, kill the pig, 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 pig. Okay, so obviously not all of the score is a winner, but hey, it's a workshop, right? We're at the beginning stages. So even though Act 2 was not done yet, it excited some producers. And so the producers that got to, that won the show were Barry and Fran Weisler, a married couple from New Jersey who specialized in tours of star revivals. So they would be like, let's get Anthony Quinn to do Zorba. Now, you can laugh at the Weislers. They're later going to have an amazing future because they're going to be the lead producers on the revival of Chicago. Oh, So the Weislers now have the show, but they have to look for the most important element of a musical. Blood. Pigs. The director. Oh. So first director they approach is the incredibly hot director, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols, who had directed... The Odd Couple, Mike Nichols, who directed tons of amazing films. Mike Nichols, this is pretty big. Mike Nichols says, guys, what you've done here is fantastic. This just is not for me. Okay. They go to Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse, Chicago, cabaret movie. He's like, eh, it needs more dancing. <laughs> so, well, and, duh. and he's also like, nope, not for me. They also go through like Robert Altman, the film director, and Arthur Penn, the film director. And the guys, the writers can't figure out, wait a minute, we, everyone really liked the workshop. Why is nobody signing on? So they're kind of getting a little depressed. And then they finally meet a guy. And his name is Terry Hands. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know the story, but just I, find, they find a guy they find named a guy. Terry Hands. 
Hands. Terry Hands <laughs> is the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company <laughs> over in England. And when the Weissers are like, what do you think of Terry Hands? All the writers go, no, he's only directed Shakespeare. He only directs classic plays. He's directed one musical in his life. The Weissers are like, can you just have a meeting with them? So the writers, Michael, Dean, and Lawrence all meet with Terry Hands. And Terry Hands just wows the guys with his literate examination of, of the script saying, you know, even though it's about contemporary high school, it clearly has its roots in Greek tragedy. And they were like, well, yes, thank you so much. Yes, that's what we were going for. <laughs> and guess who gets to direct Carrie the Musical? And you know how uh, the approach you took? Huh? Hands on. <laughs> that's a hands on approach. <laughs> it's a joke. You get it. <laughs> Let me have my cigarette. So now the Weislers are excited and over the moon. And so the Weislers meet Terry at a party and they say to him how excited they are and how much they think this high school musical like lends itself to drama. And Barry and Fran say to Terry, when you think of this show, the kids, the high school and everything that goes with it, think Greece. <laughs> and Terry goes, absolutely ancient Greece. Uh. There's a little bit of confusion here. The Weislers meant we go together, Greece. <laughs> Shamalamalama. They meant Summer Nights, Greece. Terry Hands, who has no idea about any sort of American musical, thinks ancient Greece, like Greek tragedy. So his designers, Ralph Coilette and Alexander Reed, come up with this design with Terry Hands that is literally based in Greek tragedy. The costumes are the girls all wear miniskirt togas. All the women wear togas. Okay. The set is practically no set. It's going to be a big white box. <laughs> so just like you were saying the initial uh, workshops were. Yep. And all that realism yeah. out the window. Everyone has been imagining that where Carrie lives is going to be pretty realistic, like three walls and sofas and radios and religious artifacts on the wall. Not according to Terry Hands. It's a wood wall with a chair. And a trapdoor. Oh, well, okay. As long as the trapdoor's there. Right? So the Weislers go over to London to see how everything's going. They show them the sketches that literally look like they're doing a production of Medea. And Barry and Fran say, we're out. <laughs> and they leave the production. <laughs> so now what are they going to do? Well, they meet a guy named Friedrich Kurz. And Friedrich Kurz is a producer on Cats and Starlight Express. He's from Germany. He's got some money. And he comes up actually with a pretty brilliant idea. He goes, hey, next year, isn't the Royal Shakespeare Company doing a season of all American works? And Terry Hans is the artistic director oh, okay. and says, yeah, we are. And he goes, so why don't we put Carrie in that? Now, the RSC was the hottest theatrical institution at the time. They had done the epic Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, and they had just done Les Mis. Okay. And they're going to do it with Carrie. What they did for Les Mis, they're going to do for Carrie as well. Wow. Because even though Les Mis made tons of money, the RSC was in debt. Got and it. they're like, Carrie will wash away all of our debt. The plan is that they'll open in London at the RSC for like three to four weeks. Then they're going to take it to Broadway for an open run. Now, Terry Hans is British, so to give it an American sensibility and to like match like the hyperkinetic flashiness that the score was having mm -hmm. at the time, Gore and Pitchford go to their fame colleague, Debbie Allen. Oh. And Debbie Allen's like, yeah, I'll choreograph the show. Then this was the first time this ever happened, and I think it's the only time it's ever happened. The American Actors' Equity Association and uh, the British Actors' Union got together and said, we're going to do 50-50. So 50 of the cast is British, 50% of the cast is American. There's a search for Carrie. Who's going to play young Carrie? And so they decide on a young girl who's 16, who's really unknown, and her name is Lindsay Hatley. 600 girls applied, like I said, Lindsay was the one who was picked. Now, if the role of Carrie is, is pivotal, the role of Mrs. White, her mom, is going to have to be a pretty big. Oh, yeah. Pretty big thing of the show, right? The writers want Betty Buckley. Who was in the movie. Who was in the movie. But after the movie, Betty Buckley was the star of a TV show called Eight is Enough. And she was in Cats. She's the person who sang Memory mm -hmm. on Broadway. She won a Tony Award for, for playing Grizabella in Cats. And she was like, I'm kind of confused as to like why you're making Carrie into a musical. She goes, this makes no sense to me. Then she listened to the score and was like, oh my God, this score is so, so good. So she has a meeting with Terry Hands. Terry Hands' old boss is Trevor Nunn, who directed Cats mm -hmm. that Betty Buckley was in. And allegedly, 
she was the very difficult to work with. Got it. Because, you know, playing a cat's very difficult. So it took her a while to finally, you know, find her groove. It could have just been a memory problem. <laughs> so Betty Buckley at this meeting with Terry Hans is kind of like, are you trying to feel me out? Like, are you trying to find out if I'm crazy or not? And he's like, I just want to find out about your personal life and your work ethic. And she's like, if you have a question about how I work, ask Trevor Nunn. And she got up and she left. But also, she had pretty big demands about money, contract, and all that stuff. And they were like, we can't meet them. So Betty's out. And then Terry Hands goes after a woman by the name of Barbara Cook. Oh, yes. If you don't know who Barbara Cook is, I'll tell you who she is. She was a very famous Broadway star in the 50s. She was the original Mary in the Librarian and the Music Man. She was in Candide. She sang the famous song Glitter and Be Gay. She had this really incredible, amazing career. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, she fell into alcoholism. She was this very, very svelte soprano when she was in the in the golden age, and she had put on about 100, 150 pounds and all that stuff. People thought she had sort of faded away. And then in the early 80s, she made a big comeback. But she never did Broadway. I mean, she came back but did cabarets and, like, did concerts and stuff. She listens to the score, and she goes, I don't think I'm Mrs. White. She goes, I'm known for being, like, really innocent and really sweet. And she goes, Mrs. White's kind of a monster. And Terry Hans had lunch with her and dined her and said, don't worry, you're exactly what I want for this thing. And she's like, great, I'm going to do it. And this is going to be the first time in almost 20 years that Barbara Cook is going to come back to a Broadway stage wow. in a book musical. So automatically that's going to be a big deal. Now, as the show is being created in Stratford, we have problems. Really? Are you shocked? First problem doesn't even come from the rehearsal hall. First problem comes from outside the rehearsal hall, where like the entire British press is saying, why the fuck are we taking government funds to subsidize a private venture? Which is, why are we paying for Carrie, which will then have a Broadway run where people will be making money off of it? They're just no fun. They're no fun. <laughs> so automatically the British press is angry about it. Terry Hans is like, you don't understand. Carrie's important. He says, Carrie is the first serious musical since West Side Story, but done in 12 tableaus, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. First thing Terry does, besides get rid of any sense of realism to the show, which automatically now you've just ruined the show, right? Because the whole fun of things like Carrie and the Exorcist is it could happen to anybody. Sure. So one, he gets rid of all that. Then he decides, hey, listen, what's really popular right now are entirely sung through shows like Les Mis. He decides to cut any dialogue pretty much between songs, which really means unless you knew the movie, you had no fucking idea what was going on and you had no idea that the girl had any special powers whatsoever. So all of a sudden you're like, what, 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 what? She can close a window with a door? What? Then she, he he goes, I goes, I've never been to an American high school. So he looks at Debbie Allen and says, I will only do the scenes with Carrie and Mrs. White, and you do everything else. Oh, my God. Now, I will say the scenes between Carrie and Mrs. White dramatically were very, very stunning. So good for you, Terry. The writers are hearing rumors of what's going on from America, and they're like, what the fuck is happening? They fly over to London, and Terry says to them, none of you are allowed into the room. You can't come into the rehearsal room. You're going to make everyone nervous. So what happens is, is at the end of the night, the writers have to gather in the lobby after not having seen a rehearsal with Terry's assistant who says, uh, Terry would like this to be done and Terry would like that to be done. He's literally shutting off the entire writers, right? Now, if everyone is really confused, who's confused more than anybody? Barbara fucking Cook, who's like, what the fuck is going on? She says, she later said, she goes, listen, she goes, I'm sitting here going, nothing is working, but she goes, this is the Royal Shakespeare Company. So she goes, they know something's wrong and they're just going to fix it eventually. They're going to get to it. They're going to get to it. So after a rehearsal period, it's, <laughs> oh, this show is going to open February 1988 over at the Royal Shakespeare Company. First of all, the show was sold out way before opening. Wow. The RSC is over the moon because they're like, we got our money back. Barbara Cook. Uh, on opening night, apparently gives Terry Hands an axe as an opening night gift, saying, you deserve this after how bad you butchered this show. Wow. She got balls, folks. Barbara Cook's got balls.
Hey friends, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review, please. The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us, and the more people that discover us, the less lost we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry. Okay. Head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner, click Go to Show, scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money, and in return, you will get access to merch, special episodes, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search This Was a Thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Let me walk you through to the best of my ability, folks, of what the opening night audience sees when they come to see Carrie the Musical. If they have any interaction with it whatsoever, they're remembering a very realistic story from the movie. The curtain goes up, and the first thing we see is a white enameled box (laughs) that is the whole set with panels that can also rotate and be mirrors. And the opening scene, tableau, is a dozen women on stage all wearing short toga workout outfits, sweating to the oldies, while the gym teacher, Miss Gardner, that's the great darling love, she's literally in a Greek lounging outfit. Automatically, you're like, what fucking high school is this? (laughs) Then Carrie shows up. She gets her period. She's mocked about having her period, but like in real life, she sings about it. Now she comes home, and we're at that fucking wooden wall with a trap door, and there's just a chair, and there's mom. Mrs. White, dressed in big, flowing, black Greek cape, with some awesome boots, by the way. (laughs) And when mom wants to punish Carrie, she just opens the trap door in the living room, which, you know, is normal, and just pushes the daughter down the trap door. And when she does, sparks fly up. What? Exactly. The sparks are representing the first time that Carrie's showing off her telekinetic powers. You would have no idea because no one has explained this to anybody. Now we're going to go to the next scene where we see these two-dimensional flat cars. It's like you're looking at the front of cars. And we see the kids out at Lover's Lane. And, of course, they wear what normal kids would wear at Lover's Lane. Women are wearing red body stockings. Nothing else. Do you understand that? Just red body stockings. And the men are wearing black S&M leather gear. Some with shirts, some not. What? We now have, folks, we're only 20 minutes into the show, and we've now gone through three different tones. We've gone through this sadistic concept, right, which is horrible, opera, full opera over at Carrie and Mrs. White's house, and now we're back into, like, footloose territory. Three tones, three tableaus. Three tones, three tableaus, right? I won't tell you everything else that happens in Act 1. End of Act 1, Carrie is standing center stage, and she makes fire come from her hands. And a wall of fire appears behind her. If you know the story, you know what's, you know, oh, okay, she's, she's experimenting more with her telekinetic powers. If you don't know the movie, you have no idea what's happening. And I just picture all these British people like, what's the fire? Oh, dear. Bring down the fire curtain. I don't remember this being Richard Third. Can this show get worse? Why, yes, it can. Because Act 2 opens and we're at the pig farm where we sing... Out for Blood, which I played for you earlier. This is where Billy slaughters all the pigs for Chris, his girlfriend. And then he takes the blood and he rubs it all over his naked torso. They said that the audience watching this looks like the audience in the producer, Springtime for Hitler, where everyone's <laughs> jaw is on the floor. I right? mean, my jaw has been open the entire time. Now, been Car- this now story. Oh, it gets better because now Carrie's about to go to prom and she does a number where the items that she uses to get ready for prom, like a hairbrush and a mirror, are all sort of floating around her in black light magic. It's supposed to show that she can pick things up and bring it over. It's not scary. It's kind of cute. It kind of looks like a Disney scene. Like, <laughs> here's my magic floating mirror, and here's my hairbrush. Now we're going to go to prom. For prom, like in all high schools, there's a mirrored rotating ball. But in this version, it's actually secured to the floor. It's not suspended. There's just a big old mirrored ball 
stuck on the floor. What? Yep. Now, the blood dropping, which is probably the most iconic thing in the film. Absolutely. Well, we had some problems in rehearsal. They tried dumping it on her, but the corn syrup mixture was too slippery. So whatever didn't get on her would get on the stage and people started falling. Okay, we'll do less. And no matter what they did, her mic kept cutting out because the liquid was getting on the microphone. So finally, what they decided was that Chris and Billy, the high schoolers, would just run on stage and pour a small cup of blood on her head. Are you kidding me? So it's not like this thing suspended and falls. They just literally like, ha ha, splash. (laughs) And then they run off stage. Now, this pisses Carrie off. And now we get to the destruction. All of a sudden, Carrie is lifted up on a white platform and she extends her arms and laser beams shoot across the audience. Once again... If you don't know the plot of the movie Carrie, you're like, what the fuck is this Star Wars scene? What is happening? And then a plastic shower curtain filling up the entire width of the stage just drops. And the kids that are behind the shower curtain, like, feign their death. That's how she's killing them. So while she's, like, looking directly out, throwing laser beams over the audience behind her, the kids are, like, in death throes. And then here it comes, folks. One of the things Terry Hands was obsessed with was he said every single British, every single mega musical has something to remember it by. Cats has the tire that floats up to heaven. Phantom has the chandelier that falls and crashes on everybody. And he's like, we must have something. We must have something. Oh, and this is what he comes up with at the end of the show. An enormous white staircase comes out. This staircase, just so we're all clear, fills up the entire width of the stage and fills up the entire length of the stage. So it's like a Busby Busby Berkeley giant yes. staircase. And Terry Hans is like, this is my chandelier. Now you have to remember at the end of Carrie the movie, she goes back to her house and she kills her mom by pinning the mom against the wall, right? And then stopping the mom's heartbeat. All very realistic. Well, now we're on this white stairway to heaven, and Mrs. White, the mom, comes out, and she's wearing a cocktail dress now. She's changed. And she just stabs Carrie. Then Carrie just simply puts a finger on her mom, and mom falls to the floor dead. (laughs) Then Carrie descends the stairs backwards, smearing all of this blood as she goes down. And the audience is snickering and laughing hysterically. Blackout? curtain comes up all you hear is boo the opening night audience booed the production wow now can it get any worse why yes it can barbara cook takes her bow walks off stage and goes right up to the stage manager and says i'm leaving because you almost decapitated me she was standing someplace where she shouldn't have been standing granted But a wall came down and literally almost decapitated Barbara Cook on opening night of the show. Wow. Literally almost cut the woman's head off. And she says, I will stay until you can find a replacement, and then I am leaving. They never found a replacement, and the poor woman had to do the entire (laughs) rest of the run. But she was always on the right part of the stage, though. Now, this doesn't stop anyone. They take it over to America. Problem is, Barbara Cook's not coming with it. So they go back to Betty Buckley, and they say, listen. Can you please do this? And her agent says to her, look, if you say no, Betty, the show is going to stop in England and everyone's going to be out of work. So they put all that pressure on her. Like, you can say no, but then everyone's going to lose their jobs. So she's like, okay, I'm going to do it. And actually, in all honesty, it's really an upgrade. It's really an upgrade. Betty Buckley has a killer voice. Barbara Cook does too. But Betty Buckley has this killer, ferocious, intense voice that works so well for Mrs. White. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have you all listen now. Here's a a sample of Barbara Cook singing And Eve Was Weak that Carrie and Mrs. White have together. So it's really the first duet that the mom and the daughter have together. And then also following immediately is going to be a sample of Betty Buckley singing it. And I think you can tell the difference and I think you can tell why Betty Buckley is an upgrade over the great Barbara Cook. Father, don't forsake her, but take her. 
So it's going to Broadway, folks. It's going to play at the Virginia Theater. They have painted the entire inside of the theater black to make it feel even creepier. Wow. It has a budget of $8 million, which was the same exact budget that the Phantom of the Opera had. Wow. And previews begin on April 28th. 1988 before the show's official opening on may 12th of 1988 so folks if you know previews are a time where the actors will do the show but the show has the right to change the writers can put in new songs new things new staging but then on opening night may 12th the show never changes again so this is their preview period at the first preview it's literally pretty much the same show as it was in london with a couple of minor little like lyrical changes they bow the curtain falls the curtain comes up boo and the audience starts booing uncontrollably. But here's where it gets interesting. When Lindsay Hatley and Betty Buckley come out, bravo, bravo, amazing, huh. bravo, standing ovation. So you now have a show that is entirely divided. Half the audience is like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And the other half is this is the most brilliant thing. I have ever seen in my life and that Betty Buckley and Lindsay Hadley are doing amazing work. It's all Terry Hans' work. They're scenes. Thank you, Terry. There's a rumor though, because the reviews were so bad, is the show actually going to open? Oh, wow. But here's the thing that I love about this is there was no texting. There was no chat rooms. So imagine like 400 queens running out of the Virginia theater to the closest pay phones, calling all of their friends going, you have to see this. And as the previews progressed, people started coming in costume like Rocky Horror. Oh my God. They would yell at the actors by name during the performance. Like you tell them Betty or sing it, Lindsay. <laughs> and then finally on May 12th, 1988, the show opened and on Broadway, the reviews are released at the same time as opening night. If you're a good producer, you have two plans, a plan. If the show gets great reviews, how do we continue? But also, what's the plan if a show doesn't get great reviews? How do we continue? Yeah. And our fabulous German producer, Friedrich Kurz, did not have a plan for what would happen if the show got some bad reviews. The most important review is from the New York Times. Frank Rich of the New York I Times. Say, the time. I want to hear Frank Rich's take on this. He just absolutely panned the show. He said it's not worth anyone's time. He's like, it's one of the worst things you'll ever see in your life. It's so bad. And pretty much every other critic followed along with Frank Rich, except a guy from the New York Post named Clive Barnes who was like, I love it. This is great. The worst, though, is the television reviews. This is the great Pat Collins from NBC. And Stephen King's horror movie has been turned into a horror of a Broadway musical. The only thing terrifying about Carrie is that there's a second act. Betty Buckley, who was in the movie version in another role, plays Carrie's mom. Gene Anthony Ray of the TV show Fame is also in the cast. His Fame colleague, Debbie Allen, is responsible for Carrie's choreography, which consists of a lot of pelvic thrusts and outtakes from a Jane Fonda video. The set is white formica and looks like a hospital kitchen. Carrie is the worst idea yet for a musical. Stephen King's story depends on the kinds of special effects that can only be done in the movies. I kind of kept hoping that Cujo, the mad dog from another Stephen King book, would descend upon the stage and put all of us out of our misery. So now we go back to our, our producer, Frederick Kurtz, who has no game plan of what to do. It's going to be great. Well, he, he gathers the whole cast and he says, we will run the show. Don't worry. <laughs> Everything is fine. And he comes up with a new radio ad, which actually I think is kind of clever. The new radio ad that's going to go out there is you hear Lindsay Hatley and she goes, some people hate me. Some people love me. You'll have to come down to the theater and find out for yourself. Oh. So that's a good tagline, right? So after the whole cast is gathered there, like right before a matinee, and he's like, we're going to run the show. Don't worry. Here's a new radio ad. Break a leg. They all go on stage. He gets on a plane. He leaves to go back to Germany. <laughs> they never see the man again. <laughs> and he tells them once he's on the plane, they should post the closing notice. So the cast left for like dinner and they came back and there was the closing notice because there was no money left in the accounts. This guy had no money left in the accounts. Wow. And Columbia Records was going to make a cast recording of the show 
And they were like, there's no money, there's no show. So there was never a cast recording That's of this. Right. And what was really sad was the British actors were stranded in New York. They didn't save enough money to get them back home. Oh, no. Okay. So in all, Carrie played 16 previews and five official performances. Only five. Yeah, and closed on May 15th as the most expensive Broadway flop in history at the time. Now, it became one of those shows that was absolutely legendary. Somebody said if everyone who said they saw Carrie actually saw Carrie, it would still be running today. <laughs> what audiences saw, especially me and my theater queens, it had to be passed on because theater is ephemeral, right? So every single person that loved musical theater, that loved Carrie, knew there was not going to be a cast recording and that it was going to close. So they all ran home. They got their tape recorders and their bulky VHS cameras, and they bootlegged the show as much as they possibly could. Now, pre-internet, you had to have a friend copy it for you or you'd have bootleg parties, right? And that's how the myth of Carrie sort of got out there. Even though there's a lot of shows that ran much less that nobody else was interested in. But the fact that everyone had heard that this show was so one moment incredibly bizarre and then one moment incredibly brilliant, but you had to be there to see it. That's so funny. It also gives birth to a fantastic book that came out in 1991, written by a Broadway historian named Ken Mandelbaum. And the book is called Not Since Carrie, 40 Years of Musical Theater Flops. And in this book, he legitimizes the show and other shows that didn't succeed and why they didn't succeed. So you have to remember, one of the things that builds up the myth around Carrie is there's no official album. There's no published script. And the writers never gave out the rights. So it wasn't with a licensing company. You could not do Carrie. So if you had seen it in one of those few previews or actual performances, you did not really know what Carrie was, right? Then in 1999, there's a children's theater group called Stage Door Manor, and they did an illegal production of the show that was attended by Gore and Cohen, who were like, you shouldn't have done this, but you guys did a really great job. I was going to say, I bet they were like, oh, well, you know what? It has heart. And then finally, in 2012, a director by the name of Stafford Arima decided to do a revival of it off-Broadway with the original guys, Gore and, and Pitchford and Cohen. They rewrote the show. They rewrote parts of the score. It was set in a very realistic, realistic. Yeah. And the show now has a cast recording. It can be licensed. And it's uh, done quite often. I think the issue was that once people actually saw the show and heard the show, the allure of it being inaccessible, once it becomes accessible, it was, it was a who cares. Yeah. And, one pe and once people saw it, they were like, okay, it's not as bad as everybody was saying, but it's also, it's not like it was this great, amazing show that needed to be brought back and be given a second look. 50% of it is, but the other 50% just still doesn't seem to work for whatever reason. And that is how Carrie became a thing. I had no idea all the stuff behind it. I feel like I w was listening so much and most of this episode is just going to be going, Wow. Oh. <laughs> well, oh, wow. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this when we come back. Carrie. Yada, da, 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 Carrie. No, that's call me. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. We're taking a break. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. We're so happy you could come in and audition today, Mr. Lane. Are you familiar with Carrie? I I've seen the film. I haven't read the book in quite some time, though. So our director, Terry Hans, is, is trying out some different things. So we think we might be casting Carrie as a guy. Do me a favor. The, the side in front of you, this is the scene where uh, Carrie is menstruating for the first time. And she's embarrassed by it. Um, and this is her reaction to it in the shower. So why don't you just read that and we'll see how it goes, Mr. Lane. Oh, my God! I think I have blood coming from between my knees. Oh, how grateful I am that I am in the shower. If I was on the carpet, Mother would not be happy. Hopefully this will just go down the drain. Something like that movie from Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my uterus is in such agony. Okay, Mr. Lane, thank you so much. Way down upon... No, 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 we don't need to hear any singing, Mr. Lane. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a sketch.
Raymond, tell me your thoughts after hearing this story of Carrie. I've always known about it. I think, I mean, I definitely heard about it from you for the first time. And Carrie's always kind of been one of those things that whenever I saw it or there's little things, I would definitely like read those articles. Some of the things that I love about this story is one, it shows you the power of the director. Yeah. That before this guy got involved and God bless him, he's passed away, Terry Hands. And he was and honestly, he was a brilliant director. If you looked at some of the stuff he had done with Shakespeare and classics, he was brilliant. This was just not his work. Mike Nichols knew. But it shows us the power of the director. Yeah. And how one person's vision can just set everything off on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And I always, I'm curious, I wonder if he ever realized like, yeah, this was probably not the right way to do this show. Like I said before, one of the other things I love about this, this Carrie the musical is it harkens back to a time when... If you didn't see it, you didn't see it. And you had to do everything possible to find whatever research. Like, how do I get a VHS grainy bootleg of this oh, show? Yeah. Who has a recording of the soundboard of the actual show? And so you had to do a lot of detective work to seek this thing out. Only a few Broadway shows since Carrie have been as, quote unquote, bad as Carrie. A show called Legs Diamond that was the story of the gangster that starred Peter Allen. And, of course, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. Turn Off the Dark. But both of those shows, I don't think, had the same sort of promise and potential that Carrie did. Sure. And I think that's why Carrie is even a sadder case than something like Legs Diamond or something like Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. Nowadays, in, in the times that we're in, which is, as we're recording this, which is, you know, 2021, 2022, I don't know if this show would have gotten as far as it did. Nowadays, there'd be like 400 workshops and 50 out-of-town tryouts. And word of mouth at the workshops and out-of-town tryouts, if it's, you know what I mean? And then also in the Broadway previews. I also think the carry in some way was a little bit ahead of its time because one of the things that's very popular on Broadway, or at least has been since Wicked came out, is the story of teenagers that feel like they don't belong. Things like Wicked, Spring Awakening, Dear Evan Hansen, if you're familiar with these shows. And Carrie, that's what this show was about. This show was about a teenage girl who feels like she is excluded from everything. So I kind of have a feeling that if this was happening, if this show came out later, it would probably be more welcomed and more embraced. Because at this time, that really wasn't what audiences wanted to see. Who is this girl and why is she whining? If you go onto YouTube, pretty much all of the, the London production of Carrie, the bootleg has been posted. The Broadway production of Carrie, the bootleg has been posted. So you can go and see what we're talking about. What about a bootleg of the original movie? That's called a pirated copy, and that means you're going to jail. Oh, shit. Are you ready to play a game, right? Hell yeah. Oh my god, the blood! This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. Mark Schroeder. I mean, carry the can we talk about ridiculous ideas for musicals? Carry the musical. If you pitch me that in an elevator, I would say you're absolutely crazy. And nine Tonys later, <laughs> <laughs> yes. the egg the egg is on my face. This is the longest revivals. running musical in history. <laughs> and I was like, right, this is crazy. What other things can you possibly make into a musical? Turns out you can turn a lot of things into a musical. Oh, good. And I found some examples of some real ridiculous things that are musicals, and I made some fake things okay. that are musicals. And we're going to determine if, if you can tell the difference between them in a little game called On in Five, but Off in Six. <laughs> I'm going to read the name of stage musical. And the two of you must work together to tell me if it's a real musical or if it's completely made up by me. Okay. Silence the musical, The Silence of the Lambs musical. It's real. Yeah. That's a real one. Have you guys seen it? I did not. Well, how about uh, Let My People Come? That is a real musical. It's a naked musical. That's absolutely correct, Mr. Schneider, yes. Requiem for a Dream, the musical. I'm going to say no. false. That is false. That was not a musical. But if you'll read this manuscript, I give me some money, <laughs> some startup money. It's not yet. Teddy Ruxpin, the musical. I feel like there has Kid to show? have been because yeah. it was big. According to my research, no. Oh. It's not. Human Centipede, the musical. This has to be one. Yeah, okay, we're going to say yes. That is true. And my favorite song, the best song for that one is... <laughs> How about the American Mall? 
The American Mall? The American Mall. I want to say... It feels like an industrial I, show. I, was, I literally was just going to say it sounds like an industrial We're going to say yes. yes. That's a real one. Yeah. That's a real one there. Raggedy Ann, the musical. That it, yes, that is a real musical, and it was a co-pro, <laughs> this is a true story, between America and Russia at the height of the Cold War. Wow. Show ran, I think, like five performances. Fox News, the musical. Oh, that has to be real. I hope not. That's a fake one. Oh, thank that was a false one. DMV, a rock opera. Sounds like something some like festival would do. Yeah. I made that one up. Thankfully, oh. that is not a real one. And lastly, Rockabye Hamlet. This is a real one. Correct. Uh, it is a rock telling Correct. of Hamlet. And I was going to do it in concert at 54 Below. And the night before we were supposed to go up, uh, the club called us and said, we're canceling because no one has bought a ticket. <laughs> And I realized that the day we were performing was on a Sunday, April 1st. Oh, and everyone no. thought the, it was a everyone thought it was a joke because they're like, oh, like no one's doing this show. Like that's like that's a funny joke that the club made. But yes, I'm familiar with Rockabye. Oh no, what did you tell the cast? It was a good cast. It was like Annie Golden from Orange is the New Black and okay. Philip Kasnoff, if you know him, he's a real talented guy. Anyway. Well, great job. You really know your uh, your guff from your business here. I try. Yeah. I try. What a deep I'm always impressed by this encyclopedic knowledge of American theater. You get used to it. Well, folks, if you saw Carrie the Musical in any of its incarnations, uh, hit us up. Let us know what you think. And if you think of any other musicals that might not make a best idea, let us know. We're interested. Although, don't take that DMV The Rock musical, because I think Mark's going to be working on that. We'll see that on Broadway pretty soon. <laughs> Bet your ass. Number six. I'm number six. Oh, wait, I just missed. I need new tags. Oh, that's good. Guys, you heard it here first. All right, folks, take care. So long, farewell. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing's Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 